From La Trobe Asia and the Australia India Institute, this is India Rising. I'm Matt Smith. That's right, for the next however many weeks, we'll be focusing entirely on India. How it works, how it doesn't, and how it got to be the country that it is today. Some of this might be basic by design. India can be a complex place for the uninitiated, and we want this podcast to be open to anyone. With that disclaimer in mind, I'd like to introduce my co-host on this journey through India. I'm Robin Jeffrey. I'm an emeritus professor of La Trobe University. Episode 1, A Post-Colonial Hangover. In 2017, India celebrated 70 years of independence from British rule. Prime Minister Narendra Modi addressed the country, calling for people to set aside their differences. India is about peace, unity and goodwill, said Modi. We have to take the country ahead with the determination of creating a new India. Can a new India emerge from the old? How has it been shaped by the years of the British Empire? This is India Rising. Firstly, uh, to start off this episode, I suppose, can you uh, briefly give your credentials? How long have you been teaching and looking at and researching India? I, I first went to India as a Canadian volunteer, Canadian equivalent of the Peace Corps, the Canadian University Service Overseas in, in 1967. And I taught school for two years in Chandigarh, the capital of Punjab and Haryana, north of Delhi. And I kind of got the India bug uh, in an intellectual way rather than a gastrointestinal way. <laughs> and I've been fascinated by India ever since. So I, I did a doctorate at Sussex University when it had some of the really outstanding scholars of India working there. Then taught for 25 years at La Trobe and have been twice at the Australian National University. Since I've been semi-retired, I've been going regularly to uh, the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore, which has been a great privilege. Can we begin this episode by having a bit of a recap? How did India come to be part of the British Empire and what did Britain get out of it? There's a, there was a Cambridge historian of the British Empire, J.R. Seeley, in the 1880s. And Seeley gave a lecture in 1883 that he called the Expansion of England, which was about how the British Empire grew. And one of the lines in the lecture that often comes up in the context of India was, Seeley says, We seem, as it were, to have conquered in people half the world in a fit of absence of mind. And it's sometimes said that the Brits came to rule India in a fit of absence of mind. Now, so, of course, so it, like they, they weren't even trying to get they, it. They, they kind of stumbled into it accidentally. Mm. And of course, that's not true. Uh, there were a lot of people who had a pretty good idea of what they were doing. And in the initial stages, it was to uh, particularly to make uh, a whole big pile of money. We, you've got to go back to the beginning of the 17th century, the 1600s, to get this picture. Europe is uh, developing capitalism. They're discovering how to run stock companies, companies that sell shares and have members who are not up for the total debt of the, the company. The joint stock company comes out of this. So in 1600, the English East India Company is formed in England uh, to trade to the east, to go out to India because there's knowledge in Europe that there's all sorts of interesting things there like spices and fine textiles. Mm. So the English East India Company's formed 1602, the Dutch equivalent, the VOC, the United East India Company that's famous in the Netherlands and eventually runs Indonesia for a very long time. 
many of the European states in the 1600s begin to f- have these little companies farms that are going to go trading. And that was essentially to bypass uh, the Turkish problem that was always apparent in getting through having to go around the Mediterranean and everything like that. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think it's uh, partly to the realization that ships in Europe now are capable of going around the tip of Africa yep. to get to the east, to get to this amazing source of wealth. It must be, well, as you said, just said, an amazing sort of wealth to generate that kind of effort Well, think of to India, go the long way around. India in 1600. Yeah. Akbar, the greatest of the Mughal rulers, is still there in 1600, I think just. India then has a a kind of wealth and lavishness, particularly with its elite, its artistic classes, that is unrivaled in the world. Mm. And to Europeans, it's a great eye-opener. The kind of wealth that's on display, the kind of architectural brilliance, Mm. the Taj Mahal is another 40 years away from being built, 1640s, the Taj Mahal. These initial European traders are experiencing a glamour of a, a, quotes, oriental court that really sticks in their minds and makes them think it may be dangerous, this going around the Cape of Good Hope and all the dangers that that kind of expedition entails. But by goodness, the rewards are worth it when mm. you come home with a shipload of spices or a shipload of these outstanding textiles made of cotton, mm. which is such a, a novelty in Europe. So the East India Company uh, develops a, a hold on that area, which is eventually... Um, Skipping forward a little yeah. bit here with the story, but the, which is eventually inherited maybe by the British Empire. It begins with setting up what they call factories, little outposts on mm. the coast of India where you trade. You build a little wall around them because you never know how the locals might take you. You might have to defend yourself at some stage. But you employ the locals? Uh, you employ the locals yeah. where that's appropriate. And there are some Europeans. Well, these little factories, of course, begin to grow. Jump ahead 100 years. By the end of the 1600s, this great Mughal empire is beginning to fall apart for various sorts of reasons. The European companies find they get sucked in to local Indian disputes more and more. So Indian rivals fighting for a piece of a pie that is breaking up, if you like, Mm. call on their European friends to help them. So the Europeans get sucked in to a certain extent. But it's in in most cases, it's a fairly willing kind of sucking because uh, they're protecting their interests. Uh, You've got to rule the country around you if you're going to trade in a lucrative way with the people who live there and for the goods they have there. So by the middle of the 18th century, by the 1750s, the East India Company is running an army of some tens of thousands of Indian soldiers. They continue to uh, conquer the country. By the end of the 1700s, they've got most of continental India is being ruled by this East India Company, a trading company now getting a lot of help from the British government, that Mm. is the crown. And that situation remains until the middle of the 19th century, till 1857, the so-called Indian mutiny of boys' own paper sorts of stories, the first war of independence, if you're an Indian nationalist, the great revolt, if you're thinking of kind of more neutral term for what happened. Indian soldiers revolt against their European officers. There's a war that goes on against the British for 14, 15 months. Mm. When it's over, the government of Britain steps in and abolishes the company and puts itself in the place of the company and says, well, we're going to have clarity and India is part of the British Empire. It's no longer being run at one remove by this private company. Yeah. 
really only 90 years, 1857 to 1947, of direct British rule mm. uh, in terms of directly by the British government. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about what the British do in the country, what they do to the country, and what effects that has. But maybe if we can start that story by looking at the end of the British Empire in India, the end of British India. When British India ends, the country was divided in two, essentially by religious lines, uh, with the majority Muslim in the West in Pakistan and Hindu India in the East. Why did uh, what is called the partition happen? And, uh, and what has been the effect? Easy question. <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. The, uh, uh, there's been plenty of... Uh, telemovies and real movies made on this topic over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. And of course, it it has an attraction to Europeans who can romanticize this period of empire. Mm. What happens in 1947, Pakistan, of course, is formed with an east and a west wing. Today's Bangladesh is East Pakistan yes, in 1947. that's awkward. Yeah. And uh, it's a, a pretty strange looking beast. There's 900 miles of a hostile power between West Pakistan and East Pakistan for those 20 or more years of a united Pakistan existing. But what's happened in 1947, I think, is a product of the colonial state that the British develop from the time of British rule and with greater urgency after 1858 when India comes under the direct rule of the British government. So you create a modern bureaucracy with lots of, you have courts, you have uh, recorded decisions, you publish rules and laws, and these sorts of things take on a permanency uh, that previous empires had not found either possible or perhaps even necessary. Mm. Um, you begin to collect data, you collect censuses, you take land reform, you take land because you want to extract revenue from it. So you survey it in very meticulous ways and you impose on the land regular taxation demands. Whereas previous empires would be a bit flexible. They might come in and take a whole lot from the peasants in a good year. In other years, they'd say, ah, oh, it's a bit a bit easy. You had a bad year. We won't tax you so heavily. The British system was, no, you're, you're up for this amount and you pay it whether it's a good season or a bad season. Mm. Much more systematic, modern bureaucratic uh, kind of system. Information gathering and the ability to transmit and retain information in the old imperial days. No doubt there were riots between religious groups in particular towns or villages, but what began in the village stayed in the village very Often in the new system, uh, a riot would be communicated through the newspapers. There would be a police report. It may go to the courts in which it would be the outcome of the riot would be prolonged for days or weeks. Mm. And then people would have recourse to maybe the census report to say, well, look at those bullies. There's there 80 percent of our local population and they came in and beat up us 20 percent. You get these kind of majoritarian possibilities made real. Groups are then able to say, well, look, we need to be protected against that group because they're bigger than we are, in a way that uh, the size was not so conscious in the kind of pre-bureaucratic, pre-colonial state days. So you begin to uh, make people conscious of identities on a wide scale mm. that they weren't necessarily conscious of in pre-colonial state times pre-bureaucratic time. So essentially they made this distinction by religion. So he's saying the, the 80% say in an area might be Muslim, the 20% might be Hindu. 
religion, but also a caste. You see, the British yes, yeah. uh, wanted to understand the caste system. They often saw things that they thought were bizarre, uh, made no sense at all. So they begin writing down what caste you belong to. So they do a census every 10 years. From 1871, there's a decennial census, and these goes on today. And they're amazing documents, but there's a terrible attempt to try to jam, if you think of 20 blackbirds baked in a pie, you try to jam an awful lot of blackbirds into that pie dish that is the census report. Mm. So it's messy. Casts are uh, slippery. But you have to give them a category, put a name to them, and print them in the census report because that's what census reports do. Mm. So you begin to get a crystallization of identities that didn't exist before. Some of that fluidity begins to go. So for social identities, whether it's religion or caste uh, or language, languages begin to get recognized in similar sorts of ways. Now that leads to politics eventually as you begin to talk about democracy, which uh, the Indian elite tiny though it is in terms of the total population of India, but from the 1880s, there's a sizable elite of hundreds of thousands of people who read English, who speak English, who have imbued uh, what the British regarded as an English education. Mm. And they, they know about liberty, they follow British politics, where a struggle for democracy is going on, and most of all, they follow, follow Irish politics, the struggle for freedom in Ireland. Mm. And these become powerful influences but religion and caste are one ways, and language are one way of mobilizing people for political purposes. And of course, it's religion that is the the breaker in 1947. So is that a um, an internal development? Then it's not something that the uh, the British decided to impose as they were leaving. It sounds like something that came from a local decision. Oh, the, d- the demand, of course, is yeah. uh, bubbling up in the. Pakistan resolution of the the Muslim League. The Muslim League is a political front formed in 1905 as a counter to the Indian National Congress, which was the elite group claiming to speak on behalf of politicized India, demanding increased freedom for India, increased participation in the government of India, looking at the Canadian and the Australian models by the turn of the last century. So they're looking for really what's being asked for in that 20-year period from 1900 to the early 1920s is something like what Canada and Australia had, responsible government within some kind of British federation. And the British, of course, aren't willing to give that. But the Indian National Congress is increasingly seen by Muslims or portrayed by Muslim elites as a solely Hindu organization, even though there are Muslims in it and Mm. it, it purports to be trying to be a national organization. So the Muslim League is formed as a way of protecting Muslim interests. And the Muslim League develops over the course of the next 30 or 40 years into a powerful organization for mobilizing Muslim opinion. Mm. And by 1940, they're passing a resolution demanding Pakistan, a state in the northeast and northwest of India where the true Muslim identity can be expressed and Muslims can grow up safe and sound. Yes, And they have too the examples of the demand for a Jewish state in Palestine and the demand for an Irish state in Ireland. So okay. you know, we're different. We're a nation. We mm. Muslims are a nation. The Hindus are a separate nation. So we need to be separate just as Jews need a state, just as the Irish need a state. Mm. So th- these kinds of examples are driving some of this. Not only do you get partition, though, but you also get displacement. 
So it isn't just cleanly, this area is Pakistan, this area is India. You get, you people need to leave where you live and go to Pakistan. You people need to leave where you live and go to India because you're Hindu. Yeah. And I mean, what happens in 1947 is is hideous. There, uh, The conservative estimates were that there were between 200 and 300,000 people slaughtered at that time. And, uh, I but, saw figures up to a million. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you'll see figures up to a million. And I think part of the answer is nobody really knows. But it, it's um, ethnic cleansing before anybody mm. had thought of that ghastly term. And in a strange sort of way, it wasn't supposed to happen. I don't think the architect of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, had any very clear idea of what would happen in a Pakistan once it was created. And he gave some indications and he said, well, look, we just want a state where Muslims can feel that it's their holidays being celebrated and not somebody else's, but we'll give equal rights to everybody who lives here. Mm. Uh, but that didn't come to pass. The atmosphere at the end of the Second World War was so vitiated by mischievous people on all sides that the killing began in March of 1947 and didn't end till the end of 1947. And in the course of that, we got uh, probably 10 million people going back and forth in the West. And then in the East, similar sorts of uh, migrations, but over a longer period. Mm. The migration from East Pakistan back and forth went on for about another two and a half, three years in a slightly more orderly, but still pretty brutal and awful way. When I went to India in 1967, that was 20 years after partition. And I taught in a school in what was Punjab, had been Punjab in the old days. And Punjab, of course, had been divided down the middle. And every teacher in the school had a partition story. Yeah, Some of them of course. more ghastly than others, but mm. every teacher. And most of the students, I was teaching sort of 10 and 11-year-olds, and all their parents, they grew up with partition stories. It's a grisly chapter, and it's one of the three grisly partitions of the first half of the 20th century, Ireland, Palestine, and uh, the British Empire and Indian. None of them have had particularly happy endings. Mm. So it's a big question. It's a loaded question. But was the British Empire a good thing or a bad thing, particularly in the context of India? How do you even start to approach that sort of thing? It's still a hot topic these days. Yeah, I think it's probably been a good thing for later generations of historians because it's given them plenty to dine on for the last 70 years. Mm. Uh, in the last 15 years, it's been particularly ferocious because there are very high profile historians, public intellectuals like Neil Ferguson making a case that the British Empire was really a very good thing. And all the chaps who got imperialized should be very thankful for having had the uplifting experience. Mm. But then people like uh, Shashi Tarur, who's got a book around at the moment called Inglorious Empire, which is an absolutely swinging attack on, on the British Empire. Uh, it began out of uh, a debate at the Oxford Union, which apparently the charming Shashi one hands down, uh, making light of this, but it's a, an amazing romp through all the wrongs and the bigger wrongs and the even bigger wrongs of the British Empire in India. Mm. We've had these kinds of uh, debates going on 
I come down with the idea that it happened. You have to understand how it happened, why it happened, and some terrible things happened. It's, the British were not in India to do India a lot of good. Any good that may have come of British rule in India came as a, a subsidiary to the fact that the British Empire was there initially to make money for private companies and private traders, and then later to advance what were seen as British strategic interests as the global dominant power throughout the 19th and early part of the 20th century. Everyone likes to talk about the railways, mm. but as uh, a number of people point out, the railways were built for strategic and economic interests of the British, and the shareholders in the railways had a very nice return of, I think, 3% on their money guaranteed by the people of India through the government of India and the taxes it raised. So right? it was yeah. a very nice way to put your superannuation fund into Indian railways about 1870, and you'd have been doing all right because you'd have known you had that nice regular return coming in regardless of what happened unless the whole of India went bankrupt and mm. that wasn't likely to happen. Well, you said that the British were there uh, because of the economy and you know, you've got jewels, you've got textiles, you've got a lot of spices, a lot of goods that India has to offer. But now you've got a very different Indian economy and you'd struggle to say that India is doing well at the moment. What effect has being a member of the British Empire had on India's economy? I don't think it did it any good. To begin with, it destroys the textile industry. And that, that perhaps would have happened anyway. The British go to India. One of the drivers are the fine cottons. So India throughout the 18th century is producing wonderful handloom cotton, the finest sorts of fabric. Between 1780 and 1830, that textile industry is destroyed as the production of cheap cotton cloth from the mills of the north of England, mm. driven by cotton grown largely on slave-run plantations in the United States, that simply drives Indian textiles out of the market. And the British government of India, the East India Company at that stage, does everything it can to stop the Indian trade with Southeast Asia and substitute the mill-made cloth that's coming out of the mills of Manchester. So India becomes a captive market. And what was once one of the great cotton producers of the world mm. is reduced almost valueless because it's been replaced. Now, part of this is perhaps the process of industrialization, but it was helped along by conscious policies to limit that Indian textile industry as a rival to this growing industrial industry. Right. So yeah. despite being a member of the empire, the British were very much uh, looking out for their own interests. Oh, very much so. And yeah. uh, Gandhi recognizes this, as did Indian economists by the end of the 19th century, and make a thing of it. Gandhi, of course, says, they ask him, what is your economic program? And Gandhi says, I can tell you in a word, it is khadi, homespun cloth. Every Indian must spin. We must take back what was once our greatest industry into our homes. We can all spin cloth. We can give it to our weavers. Mm. And we must not use foreign cloth. So the boycott of foreign cloth is part of the Gandhian national appeal of the 1920s and 30s that really is powerful. When Gandhi goes to England in 1931, he goes up to Manchester to see the depression hit textile industries of Lancashire. He stays with poor workers, who some of whom are supposed to say to him, sir, we understand what you're doing. We're starving because we have no work in our mills here now. You're discouraging our cloth in India, but we understand you're fighting for your country's freedom. So yeah, okay. it makes a very uplifting kind of story for yeah. the Gandhian side. Yeah. The 
million dollar question is would the economy in India be better off if British India was never a, a thing? It's hypothetical. It was hard, I think, for the rest of the world to resist this phenomenon of the 17th, 18th centuries onwards, uh, capitalism mm. and the ability to put together investment to do huge projects that previously had been unthought of. When you can match capitalism with science and technology, I think there is the kind of ingredient of the, the modern world. And in some ways, that's irresistible. Yeah. You mentioned the railways, but what if we were to put forward the argument that British India was a good thing for India? What did India get out of it that they've got in place today? Uh, well, if you were putting that kind of argument, you'd say uh, the legal system, system of courts and laws that was codified in the 1860s. So the rule of law would mm. be one of the things put forward. The, the railways and communications, posts and telegraphs. When Indian kids in the old days were forced to write letters on the benefits of British rule, it was always the poor old post, telegraphs and railways that had to get rolled out. Mm. Um, Perhaps the most important thing, though, and paradoxical in a way, is the English language, that it, it has created a sense of Indian unity that didn't exist before for an elite. And in doing that, the use of English both unites and divides. It unites the country geographically, but it does divide in terms of class. The snobbery about a good English accent mm. has always been there. The mocking of someone who speaks very effective English but with a pronounced Indian accent and Indian usage that used to go on. Perhaps it's happening less and less. It's one of the, the good things, one of the more attractive qualities of Narendra Modi is that he doesn't purport to speak English well and he makes no bones about that. And he speaks Hindi or Gujarati whenever he can. And mm. that's probably a good thing. I don't think India, as we know it, can dispense with English, and I don't think it's likely to. I think more and more people will come to have a reasonable command of English. Nevertheless, it, it's a divider in terms of class. It's a uniter in terms of geography. Yeah, yeah. What is the relationship now then between India and England like? I think for both of them, it's not a particularly important relationship. That may seem... Paradoxical, but the British uh, DFID, the British Overseas Development Mission, still has projects in India. There's still a sizable British investment in India, as I understand it. There's sizable Indian investment, of course, in Britain, in the steel industry, in Jaguar cars, owned by Indian capitalists now. Mm. There's the other great British connection now, of course, is the huge Indian and Pakistani and Bangladeshi population that lives in Britain. Mm. Something like three and a half million people identify as coming from one of the three big South Asian uh, countries today. Mm. And that's perhaps the most important aspect of the relationship, though somebody like Sadiq Khan, the Lord Mayor of London, yes. uh, who's born in London of Pakistani parents, I, I don't think pa Sadiq Khan identifies particularly strongly with Pakistan today, but nevertheless, those are his, his roots, his origins. And in the best of cases, that should lead to greater understanding. In the worst of cases, it can lead to greater misunderstanding, I suppose. What about as far as the British Empire? What's the sentiment from both sides? Do the British look back fondly on their colonial uh, brothers and is there resentment on the Indian side? More and more, 
young Indian men and women look to the United States for their education rather than the Oxford-Cambridge thing, which the Oxford-Cambridge-Brit attraction was there 50 years ago, maybe yeah. even 30 years ago, much less so today, whereas I think the U.S. attraction is still there in terms of looking for your higher education, for one thing. The romanticizing of the empire in India, I think, has been fostered by a lot of telemovies and so on. If we go back to the Paul Scott wonderful series, The Raj Quartet, that was made for television about 35 years ago, it, I suppose, didn't romanticize. It didn't paint a particularly attractive picture of British rule. But nevertheless, it was all a little bit homogenized and I think gave people this sense of, you know, handsome uh, soldiers running around in red tunics and riding horses Mm. that goes with the British Empire. And the publishing industry, of course, uh, still finds that kind of imperial story very attractive, it seems, for British audiences, British audiences of readers. On the Indian side, I don't think most young Indians really care a great deal about the English. They'd rather beat the Australians at cricket. Uh, (laughs) I don't think it's a relationship now that has an awful lot of, what should we say, visceral uh, engagement. It doesn't stir people's stomachs on either side a great deal anymore. Elites will get worked up over it, over when are you going to bring the Kohinoor diamond back? And then, of course, where are you going to bring it back? Because you bring it back to Pakistan or Afghanistan, India or or maybe (laughs) Iran, you know, there'll be a few bidders for that. Democracy, Indian democracy is a product of that liberal British empire because Mm. it was a liberal empire in some ways. It did take baby steps towards giving people greater participation in it. It did create a well-educated elite, created universities for its own ends, but in ways that the French and the Dutch didn't do in Vietnam Mm. or Indonesia. So that whole notion of English liberalism is one of the legacies. And to my way of thinking, that's a good thing because I can't imagine India as the state, the sovereign state we see today existing in any other way except as a democratic federation with a strong, strong streak of liberality about it in terms of what you're allowed to believe, what you're allowed to say, yeah. because it is so diverse. Mm. The, I, India today is the size of Europe and about two and a half times the population of the European Union. The distance from Lisbon to Helsinki is about the same as the distance from Trivandrum to Srinagar, that is from the bottom of India to Kashmir. Mm. So it's a vast, vast place. The federation that evolved through membership of the British Empire, seeing the Canadian, Australian and American examples played out through British eyes, led Indians to believe a federation was the the way for their government to be constructed. Mm. I think that's right. And the democracy uh, is almost essential because it is so diverse. Mm. There are so many voices. To rule through only a single set of voices would be very, very, very difficult. You've been listening to India Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia and the Australia India Institute. It featured Robin Jeffrey, and I'm Matt Smith, your host and producer. This has been a podcast from La Trobe University. Thanks for listening.